I'm Marty Moscow Wayne. Welcome to The Connection. Back in 2016, President Obama awarded writer James McBride a National Humanities Medal for, quote, humanizing the complexities of discussing race in America. McBride has said love, humor, and kindness are the meat and vegetables of a good story. That instinct lives in everyone. McBride's best-selling memoir, The Color of Water, A Black Man's Tribute to His White Mother, was written almost 30 years ago. More recently, he won a National Book Award for his novel, The Good Lord Bird, about abolitionist John Brown. That was followed by Deacon King Kong, a novel set in a Brooklyn housing project, rather like the one where McBride grew up. His new novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, is set in the hardscrabble Chicken Hill section of Pottstown, Pennsylvania, home to blacks who migrated from the South and Jews who immigrated from Eastern Europe. It begins in 1972 when a skeleton and mezuzah are found in the bottom of an abandoned well. The story then shifts to the 1920s and 30s as this close-knit community struggles to find the American dream and bands together to rescue a young boy who's been taken to a house of horrors, an institution for people with disabilities called Pennhurst. That was a real live place here in Pennsylvania. James McBride brings his trademark humor, vivid characters, complex plot lines, and open-heartedness to the story about the power of community and connection. He's a musician, a screenwriter, distinguished writer in residence at NYU. Joining us here in our Philadelphia studios, James McBride, nice to talk to you again. It's nice to see you again as well. Well, let's start actually at the very end of your book. And you make an acknowledgement that this book is an ode to this guy named Cy Friend. He was director of the Variety Club Camp for Handicapped Children. This was in Worcester, Mass. Excuse me, Worcester, Pennsylvania. You were actually a camp counselor there. And you talked about his lessons of inclusivity, love, and acceptance that have stayed with you almost 40 years. How did he do that? Well, he was, uh, he did it by demonstration. Uh, he loved the kids, um, and he, he broke a lot of rules to make their lives comfortable and full of fun and joy. All the kids were from the Philadelphia area. They were a mix of kids, black, white, a lot of working class people, a lot of working class families, and he knew the kids by name. He knew the parents. He, was, he, was, he changed a lot of their lives, and the fact is he, he would probably say, and those of us who worked under him would say, they changed our lives more than we did theirs. Yeah. So he was just an inspirational cat. You know, he also, you know, he also, at the time, you know, he was, he, he got married to, he married his husband, Bob, a few years ago. And so he, he was very quiet about his, uh, you know, his being, being a gay person. And that was something back in those times was just, it could have gotten him in all kinds of trouble. But the fact is a lot of the stuff that he did with the kids could have got him put in jail. I mean, Cy was really... <laughs> You know, he a rule breaker, was, right? He was a rule breaker who, who really functioned on the on the business of love and uh, equality. You know, you talk about a camp counselor, or a counselor who was, or a camper who was there, a guy named Lamont Garland, and he describes Cy coming to visit the Widener Memorial School in Philadelphia, getting a standing ovation. I'd love to have you read a section. This is from the very, very, very end of the book. Okay, I leave it to you, dear reader to picture that crowded auditorium more than 45 years ago. The conglomerate of crutches, wheelchairs, and children with all types of disabilities bursting into roaring ovation. Those who could stand, I suppose, stood. 
the rest roiling into the usual roar of joy that I witnessed when Cy would turn the Variety Club camp on its head via some special event he or some staffer had dreamed up to make it into the dazzling carnival of life that every one of us would remember for the rest of our lives. The hooting, the clapping, the yelling, the cheering, the howling, the crutches being waved in the air, the gorgeous cacophony of humanity in wheelchairs, some wearing special eyeglasses, others in hearing aids, signing and gesturing, the winks and chortles and grunts of pleasure, the grimace and and shaking of heads and exciting howling of those without quote-unquote normal ability. It's impossible to describe, but it all boils down to the same thing, love, of a man and the one principle he gave his life to, equality. Thus this tome. Hmm. I love that scene, just the joy, the exuberance. You know, one can feel the love that they felt for this man. Oh, he was just, he was, he really was a person who was about love for the children. And his, his staff looked like the United Nations. I mean, he had football players, all kinds of people worked there. Uh, but if you didn't love the children, you did not work there very long. Uh, but if you did love the children and you treated them with the kind of equality, if you actually, if you enjoyed them with the kind of joy that he did, uh, the, the lessons behind that lasted the, the rest of your lives and really pinged into and pushed you into all kinds of excellence. Later, many of the counselors at that camp went on to excel in fields of all kinds, educators and doctors and lawyers and architects. They just, because we were, we were bathed in the humanity of what is possible because you know, we, un- we learned the impossible. As you say, thus, this tome, this tome, of course, being the book that you have just written. Yeah, I like that word, tome. Yeah, tome. Yeah. It's kind of old-fashioned, yeah, but it me, feels good. It makes me good. seem smart. Tome. <laughs> bo, 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 bo. Tome. <laughs> <laughs> Has a kind of musical quality to it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, then, let's segue from the very end of your book to the very beginning of your book into this neighborhood in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. It's called Chicken Hill. How would you describe this place. Well, Chicken Hill is based on a real Chicken Hill. I mean, it's you know, there is a there was a real Chicken Hill in the real town of Pottstown. Uh, in those times, in the 20s and 30s, Chicken Hill was a place where blacks and Jews lived together, and anyone else who couldn't afford to live in town lived together. Um, so I just placed a grocery store in the middle of that, and I mean, it was a place without running without running sewers, and it was you know discarded where the poor lived. Uh, as opposed to, you know, I wanted to portray Pottstown and towns like it the way they really were, as opposed to sort of the Andy Griffith Mayberry where, you know, everyone was white and everyone was happy and there were no Jews and Italians and blacks, and you know. So um, I just studied it and studied towns like it to create this, you know, this scenario. Well, and it reminds me of of your novel Deacon King Kong, which is also set in a neighborhood. Now, this is an urban neighborhood, but nonetheless, you've got people whose lives are interconnected and secrets and gossip and all the things that hold communities together. Well, that's what it's all about. I mean, community. Community is everything. Community connects us. You know, as soon as you you look, you go to L.A., they just drive all over the place. That's not community. That's Mm. driving. But, you know, here on the East Coast... And in thousands of towns across America, that whole business of community is really what connects us. I mean, that's one reason why I picked this time is because, and to pick this kind of community is because I wanted to show how people learn to get along despite the fact that they were different, you know? 
Well, and it's interesting because I think for a lot of these communities, people, and I'm, you know, I'm speaking for people, but nonetheless, you know, they drive by, they see the poverty, but they don't see the people. Well, I, I, that, that happens all the time. It happens even today. Uh, you know, the lack of local news is killing this country, but that's another, con- that's another conversation. But, you know, when you look, everybody wants the same thing. And you can make a whole lot of money in this world, in this country, by talking about the differences between people. But the truth is that the humanity of people uh, far you know, exceeds the differences. And what powers that is love and, and patience and, and tolerance. It's not one of my favorite words, but, and humor. Hmm. Because you know people are funny. Got to laugh too, you, right? You Got to laugh. You don't <laughs> laugh at it. You know, you're not going to make it. Well, tell us about Moisha Ludlow and and his wife. Is it Chana or Chana? Well, I call her Chona, but you know people some call her Hana. Uh, Chona is how I've yeah. always pronounced the name. Yeah. So this is a Jewish couple. They live in this Jewish couple. This and they live in this little town. Moshe opens a theater, and he's sort of a you know he's a clumsy theater owner who opens a theater, and he's. He's, you know, his first show falls apart. He's from Europe. He's from Romania. He's a former Romanian refugee who wandered Europe and had to walk 800 miles to get to Hamburg and to get his, his journey was difficult. He opens this theater and, and it really, things are falling apart until he meets Chona. Yeah. And he marries her and she kind of gets him together. And, in the, and she also runs her father's grocery store called the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. So him meeting Chona really changed his life because Chona is a central character. Indeed, to indeed. This story. And not to move the story too quickly along, but they, you know, it, he becomes successful. They make some money. He wants to move. He wants to get out of Chicken Hill, and she says, "No, we're not going." No, she says, "No, why? The postman knows where we live, right. and he wants to move. Let's move where the Americans are." And she says, "Which Americans?" You know, she was a person who, she was a you know fairly religious Jewish woman who felt that the practices of Judaism involved, uh, the expression is uh, tikkun olam, which is to uh, heal the world. Yeah, to know, serve. To right? serve. And she believed it, and she lived it. And she also was someone who had polio and uh, understood what it was like to be uh, disabled and considered less than whole. Uh, you know, I, she, saw, she was arced out of my own life my grandmother yeah. was jewish and lived in a small town and ran a grocery store and uh, she, but you know my grandmother's life was difficult so i wanted her to she didn't have a lot of love in her life so i wanted her to be loved so i put her on the page and made her loved <laughs> you know you can do that as a novelist right you Absolutely. can in a sense change the past that's right well you can make, make it, it better well you can create the scenario where people can imagine the best of themselves and what the possibilities are. I mean, how I mean, how many thousands of you, you look when you talk about black Jewish relations in this country, it's like dangerous to tell you like a minefield. But the truth is, you know, when I grew up, most of my teachers were Jewish. Yeah. Uh, the working class world in New York was Jewish and I don't I believe Philadelphia was the same way. Most of the, the Variety Club camp, which is this book is, is created, was the land was donated by Romanian Jewish theater owners, and it was a heavily "quote unquote" Jewish camp, whatever that means. Um, so why not show it? Sure, but do you think, and we're almost up in a break here, but do you do you think of the twenties and thirties at least when it came to Jews and blacks, these were the good old days? No, no, not at all. Okay. No, these were just times when we learned how to get along, and because. Jews 
well, I don't want to speak for the Jewish community, but we learned how to get along because we were both, both groups were limited in terms of their ability to fold into the wider society. Now, that happened a lot easier for Jews than it did for blacks. The question is, and the question that's raised in this book, is what do you leave behind when you do that? And so what do you have when you fold into the whole? I mean, I mentioned that in the book when one of the Moshe's friends says, you know, we're integrating it. You are integrating into a burning house, which I pulled out of actually Martin Luther King's mouth, but with, with yeah. difference that's a vague. Oh. <laughs> but the burning house meaning America. America, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take that short break, and then I'd love to have you do another reading after the short break. And again, James McBride is our guest today on The Connection. Uh, I've interviewed him, uh, I think, on just about all of your books, if, if memory that be, serves. That would be correct. That would be, I'm happy to say, correct. And uh, we've been talking about his new novel, and it's titled The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. And there's a lot of Pennsylvania um, in this novel, including the fact that uh, the neighborhood is in Potts, part of Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and also Penhurst, which uh, was an institution for people with disabilities, also plays a very major role in this novel as well. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscoane. And if you're just joining us, I'm talking today on the show with James McBride. Uh, about 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago, he wrote his best-selling memoir, The Color of Water. He's written a number of books, including several uh, novels in between or since then, and his new one is called The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. Uh, we've been talking about Moish and, and his wife, um, and I'd love to have you read a section where Moish talks about America. Okay. Uh, he's discussing, uh, this is what the nation that Moish comes from. They are a lost nation spread across the American countryside, bewildered, their yeshiva education useless, their proud history ignored, as the clankety-clank of American industry churned around them, their proud past as watchmakers and tailors, scholars and historians, musicians and artists, gone, wasted. Americans cared about money and power and government. Jews had none of those things. Their job was to tread lightly in the land of milk and honey and be thankful that they were free to walk the land without getting their duffs kicked or worse. Life in America was hard, but it was free. And if you worked hard, you might gain some opportunity, maybe even open a shop or a business of some kind. Hmm. Tread, their job was to tread lightly. I underscored that. Well, I mean, you know, when I went to... Uh, when I was researching The Color of Water and interviewing some of the old Jews in Suffolk, Virginia, where my mother grew up running a small store with her family, that's exactly what, this is what they described. Just be quiet. Because in those days, there were signs that said no dogs, no Jews, no, you know, the N-word. You know, you're not supposed to say that these days. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm not making fun of that, by the way. It's just, uh, because Jews were, regarded as different. The fact is, anti-Semitism has always existed, existed in this country. And we see that now. It hasn't changed. Yeah. 
with it's his chains. It's always there. It's always just below the surface. Yeah, it's always there. Um, and uh, it's often overlooked um, and because it's difficult to talk about. Um, and even Jews find it difficult to talk about. Because, you know, the old folks who came here in the 20s and 30s, when my mother was a child, it was pretty clear that Jews were not welcome in certain places in certain towns. Um, I remember talking to Charles Strauss, Charles, Charlie Strauss, who wrote um, Annie. Is that his last name, Strauss? Oh, I don't know. Charles. Annie, the musical yeah, Annie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles, jeez, I'm getting older. <laughs> but I remember me. he said he was touring the South <laughs> with a black singer. And uh, they wouldn't feed. They wouldn't. Uh, they went to get something to eat, and the guy wouldn't service it. Charlie said, "I ain't eating here neither." And the guy spit on him. Oh <laughs> my God! It he, is Charlie's house. He said, "I still remember the tobacco stain running oh. down my." And he was laughing when he said, "But I mean, he was laughing in a, in a way that you can." Jewish humor is important. Humor is important. Yeah. And um, my point is that there are. This is we have a. When we look back at history. When the people who've come here from Europe have have stuff suffered to come to get where they are, it's no different than those who come here today, from India and Ecuador or whatever. Um, and we we have to have a space for them to fold into American society. Society, mm-hmm. not to mention the journey of African Americans, which is more difficult than anyone than any particular group. But yeah. I wanted to point that out in this book because I think there people don't really understand how difficult life was for. Jewish people in the early part of the 20th century. And you mentioned your grandmother, but also your your mother. I mean, your grandmother, I believe, sort of like your character, Chona, um, had polio. As you said, a kind of... Now, Chona has a, a good marriage and a happy marriage, right. largely. Your grandmother, not so lucky. No, no, she didn't. She was married to a man who, you know, claimed to be a rabbi, was very abusive, and, uh, hmm. you know, she lived in a town. She didn't speak English. She lived in a small southern town. Uh, their store was in the black section of town. I mean, it, it's a right. it's a familiar story to those who who have spoken to their grandparents or their great grandparents about life in small town America for Jewish people. And your mom as well. Though. I mean, oh your, yeah, your memoir. yeah, my mother. You know, my mother ran away from that. You know, yeah. when she married my father. They sat shiva, right? Yeah, they sat shiva for you. She married your. Well, she married your dad? my father. Yeah, but uh, look, that was then. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, this is. What what you get from the past is what you learn from it. I mean, you can go around and say, "Well, they sat shiva for," but you know, that's what they did in those days. That that's what they knew. People do what they know. It's not like they're trying to be, you know, racist or foolish. That's just what they did because she was out of the family. She she was in an Orthodox Jewish family, yeah. so you can't place your 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 standards and your principles against that. It's just. You can't judge people. If you're a writer, you can't judge. When there's judgment, there is no journey. And a, a writer, your job is to, to find the journey. Hmm. I want to pick up on that, but let me throw out two more characters. And these are um, a, a couple, Nate and Addie, who live in the same neighborhood. They're they're black. Um, and Nate works for Moisha in the grocery store. Um, I don't know if friend exactly describes their relationship. I mean, I think Addie and, and Chona, yes, the men, more difficult. Yeah, their relationship was complicated by, by space and by religion and color and, and by Nate's reluctance to talk about his past because Nate is a yeah. very complicated person. You and know, he has a complicated past. He has a very complicated past. Like many like people, super right? Compli- <laughs> yeah, well, like many people, but even more so because he, uh, 
you know, he comes from the low country with Gullah country in South Carolina, which is a lot different than just like straight up and down, you know, black person from Virginia because the Gullah people, you know, kept a lot of the African culture. Hmm. So, and Nate is a very strong character. He's one of my favorite characters. He doesn't speak much, but when he does talk, you know. People listen, right? People listen, that's right. He's like E.F. Hutton, but, you know, uh, but better. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say better because E.F. Hutton's great. Dominus is E.F. Hutton's great. He crosses himself. But you do say, and this is about Nate, Nate kind of related to Moisha, he was a man without a country living in a world of ghosts. That's right. That's right, because he had no car, no key, no... You know, no property. You know, he was just a working guy who happened to work for a Jewish guy who wasn't insanely rich but was rich enough to pay him. I mean, both of these men were disconnected from the greater society. Um, And both, well, in the case of Moshe, he wanted to be connected more. In the case of Nate, that he just knew those rules didn't apply to him, so he didn't even try to apply himself to those things. And that was another disconnect between them. Moisha has this uh, all-American dance hall and theater. This is in uh, Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and decides um, to invite Chick Webb and his roaring 12-piece band to come and perform. Of course, all hell breaks loose because uh, the whites in the town are horrified that that a black musician would be playing in their town. That's right. And uh, so what, he, what Moisha does is he just... He just cuts deals, you know. He gives the fire chief some booze, and he makes sure the clean. He cleans the, mm-hmm. makes sure that his crew cleans the sidewalk of the other merchants. He makes deals. He wiggles around, which is really what a lot of people, Jewish people, had to do in those days. You just made deals, and you wiggled around. You were clever, and you kept quiet, and you tried to make your money. Um, and I should, I, I might add that bef- before Chick Webb came, you know, he had Mickey Katz, Mickey Katz. the wonderful, you know, <laughs> klezmer ensemble of the great clarinet wizard yeah. from uh, Cleveland to come, and that that was a bust. But it w- it would have been a bust if it wasn't for his wife. But my point is that these cultural things did exist in places like Pottstown, and you know, the theater owners had to be real clever about how they did stuff. You know, because Chick Webb would bring money. Black people love Chick. Chick Webb was brilliant. You know, he's the guy who got Ella Fitzgerald started. That's right. He was just, a, and he was he was disabled himself. He had a curved spine, and he didn't live very long. But he was a kind mm-hmm. of revolutionary drummer. You have these wonderful scenes in this book of people just dancing their 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 butts off, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, to this music. And you also have some pretty funny descriptions of white people trying to do the same thing. Moisha watched in puzzlement as these Americans danced with clumsy satisfaction at the moans and groans of these boneless, noise-producing junk mongers, their boring Humpty Dumpty sounds landing on the dance floor with all the power of empty peanut shells tossed in the air. <laughs> and you have also said that you are a terrible dancer or maybe that's the, right. the no, worst that's, dancer in African Americana yeah, yeah. they should put me in the museum down <laughs> in DC they just have a picture of me holding a beer with one finger in the air is, is that you dancing <laughs> that's about it it just doesn't work for you <laughs> I just I just I mean God uh, God gave me a lot of stuff but Rhythmic dancing is not one of the gifts. That's so funny. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. James McBride is our guest today on The Connection, and he's got a a new novel we've been talking about called The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. In this uh, story, uh, a young 
boy named Dodo um, is orphaned. His mother dies as a result of a stove exploding. It's a kind of a complicated plot line, but nonetheless, he loses his hearing. Um, his aunt Addie and Uncle Nate, they take him in, and then they ask Moisha and Chona to take him in because people from the state are looking for him, and they want to take him off to this place called Penhurst. Right. Um, <clears throat> that's a, that's a, a big part of the story, and again, that is uh, that that's it pings into my own history with the disabled. When yeah. I started researching uh, how to 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 to, uh, to show what children of disabled, so-called disabled children, went through, I did a lot of research in that at, at Norristown State Hospital, which yeah. is still open, I think, and also at Penhurst. And Penhurst was just a horror show. Really, it was one of the worst. It's one of the worst places you could have sent a disabled child. So I wanted no to place for children. I think no, someone it, says. Look, it, it, no place for ch- no place for anyone really, yeah. but certainly no place for children. Um, and so when I the three chapters of this book that deal with Penhurst were the most difficult for me to write personally, uh, because because they're really they're real, you know. The smell of the place was just horrible. You know, the people in in the day room sitting there for hours and hours. I mean, it's just uh, it was yeah. it was a this was an opportunity to show the public or show my readers not not that they belong to me but show readers of my books what people went through, particularly children, went through when they went to a place like Penhurst. I mentioned to you before going on the air that back in the 70s, before I worked at WHYY, I was a case manager for a community mental health center in the Kensington, North Philly area. And I part of my job was to go visit places like Byberry and Penhurst and Sealands Grove and other institutions in Pennsylvania to see how are people doing that were sent there to live. And your descriptions, the, the sort of horrifying descriptions, really capture what that place was like, and the smell. I mean, just I will never, I will never, not remember that smell. Yeah, well, I mean, they used a certain agent to clean the floors. Yeah. Oftentimes, the patients would be cleaning the floors. And uh, look, if you have an overcrowded institution with people who can't, some of whom can't control their their uh, bodily functions, and you have, you know, two attendants who are who are supposed to take care of ninety people. You're going to have lots of problems. Yeah. Um, these places were underfunded, overcrowded. Um, no one cared except for the people who worked there, and many really fine people worked at some of these places, including Penhurst. But it was just it was a way of stowing away society's problems, and. Um, um, you know, we really still haven't worked that out, but we got rid of those institutions. Yeah. Um, and nowadays, you know, as I mentioned to you off the air, they make Penhurst into a haunted house during the ho- the Halloween. I mean, whoever dreamed that up really is making a mistake. I mean, that place is, is does it, it should be many things, but a haunted house or a place where you can spend the night. I mean, and get scared to death. What's so scary? Right. The scary part about it is that someone thinks that this is good. That's the scariest part about that whole idea. The place that where so many people suffered and so many people, good people gave the best of their lives would become a haunted house. I mean, it's just an embarrassment, really. I, I want to read you, have, uh, have you read another section? And, and Dodo, this young boy, does get hauled off to Penhurst where he meets another, I put patient slash inmate, it's hard to know sometimes, um, that he calls monkey pants, and they're essentially in the same crib next to each other. 
and monkey pants has cerebral palsy and and doesn't speak out loud. Um, and you you have this this description of his his determination to communicate with Dodo, and I wonder if you could read that. Okay. Watching monkey pants give a lecture was like watching an octopus trying to shake hands with a flamethrower. Nothing worked right. The boy fought to communicate. His chest constricted, his lips contorted, his limbs flapped around wildly in spasmic bursts. They seemed to have their own mind about which direction they wanted to go in. He worked like a madman, his limbs flailing, mouth moving in unintelligible bursts, then stopping as he exhausted himself, only to continue after catching his breath, only to exhaust himself again. This happened several times before Dodo deduced that Monkey Pants was trying to say something important. I picked that because, and I, I get this from your book and some of your other books, about just the need, the power to communicate with someone. And here's someone who does figure out how to communicate, but the the full body effort that it takes for him to connect with another person. Well, you know, the important thing to remember that I learned about disabled children who have like one might have this kind of disability and one might have another kind of disability is their patience and willingness to sit there until somebody gets their idea across because they both understand what it's like to have a thousand thoughts inside only a small tiny fraction of which can 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 get out can meet the air yeah so that's why I wrote it in that way. Yeah, and and Dodo was patient enough to Dodo was patient to, enough to, to kind of figure it out. It out. He's yeah. deaf himself, um, or, or you know, hearing impaired, how we would call it. And he knows what it's like to to for the, to understand that the details of life are not going to get across the details you see. These kids spend a lifetime watching. They 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 they're the true invisible man. They're Ralph Ellison's invisible man with hmm. crutches. Hmm. And they have seen the world walk right by them, and they know. And they know this at the age of five, six, seven, eight. So by the time they're the age of these two kids, eleven, twelve years old, they know. They know what's going on. They have watched. They've spent. They've spent their lives watching us. Talking about these two characters, but even all that, and there are many, many characters in this book. You love them. You love these people. Well, because they gave me so much when I was a, when I was a young man, you know, uh, I'm not the only one who worked at Variety Club Camp. They gave us, they showed us how to live. My niece also, my, my niece who died when she was 28, she her name was Jade. She, they, she just showed us how to live. You know, they just show us how to be. Now, if you if you decide not to see it. I mean, it's sort of like talking about racism to someone. You could have the hand, you can have your it's like a hand right in front of their face, and they say, well, I don't see it, you know? We're all the same, you know? Blue lives matter, whatever kind of jive they come up with. But the truth is, if you want to see the world and you work at it, it makes you better. It makes you stronger. It makes you more tolerant, for lack of a... It makes you happier and makes you less cynical. And that's the gift that these kinds of children give to the world. This is a special heaven for those these kinds of children and their parents. Really, I'm convinced of it. Almost up in a break here, but also I think it's it's scary for people uh, for people who don't have obvious disabilities. I think we all have them. Um, to to see people who are having struggles walking feeling like that could be me, you know. Well, I don't feel that way. I mean, I I I mean, I feel blessed. Yeah, sure. Sure, you you can I could have been me. Well, we all have disabilities. Which ones do you have? 
That's yeah. really what it boils down to. And a lot of our disability from, for so-called normal people is about our blindness and unwillingness to see the humanity of other. That's why you know Chona was such an important character because she saw past all of that. She was a person who saw the world cleanly, and and so she functioned within the world she knew. Well, let's take another short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation with James McBride. Uh, We're talking about his new novel. It's called The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, and it is set in um, a neighborhood in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, James McBride, of course, the author of The Color of Water, written almost 30 years ago. He also got uh, the National Book Award for the The Good Lord Bird. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Our guest is James McBride. He's a writer, screenwriter, uh, writer in residence, I believe, at New York University, uh, also a musician. Let me just quote something. We've been talking about um, places like Penhurst, people who have so-called disabilities. You write, their illness is not in their minds or the color of their skin or in the despair of their heart or even in the money that they may or may not have. Their illness is honesty, for they live in a world of lies ruled by those who surrendered all all the good things that God give them for money, living on stolen land, taking from people whose spirits dance all around us like ghosts. That's quoting one of your characters. But this is talking about people with who are like 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 monkey pants, you know, that we don't see. Yeah, well, well, being disabled in this country, uh, it's kind of like being a witness to your own lynching, where everybody gets to make a speech about you, but you. Hmm. And uh, so this particular character works at this particular character in the book, Miggy, work, works at the Penhurst and, and has been moved. And she's an oracle. You know, yeah. she's a person who really reads spirits and reads futures and so forth. So she really gets it in, in the most intense sort of way. So she can really express some things that maybe someone who's, you know, not that spiritual could do. Yeah. You've written, and this is not your first book that I would describe as having a kind of positive, optimistic look about humanity, but we live in such bitter, cynical times, and I wonder whether you feel like a misfit. No, man, it's not hurting me. You know, someone else wants to be yelling and calling people names, it don't bother me at all. I mean, um, I I don't really feel that. Look, if you have cancer, you want to see it. Pull it out, pull the skin back, and let's work on it. And mm-hmm. that's where we are. We're in the working through it part of it. And it's difficult. But um, I don't know on the TV, that helps. You know. Oh, wow. I don't bother with that nonsense. But wow. uh, 
in I'm general, thinking of all the shows you've missed, but that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's true. Okay. Yeah, was, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> well, my sister tells me about all of them, so I, I catch up on everything. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I'm not. I don't feel that way about. Uh, I feel that way kind of a little bit about sports, but not about society. Yeah, you you feel like the people we are sort of at our at our core good people. Oh yeah, yeah. I think. Listen, if we really if we were really as bad as you know some of the more you know more recent powers would have us become we'd have been like rwanda and just started killing each other just mm-hmm. outright because people got so many guns in this country it's crazy yeah but we haven't done that in fact we're going the other way the thing is that good people are quiet they don't go making noise you know it's look if you want to be if you want to get money you want to make money in this country if you're black like if you're a black republican you want to make money all you got to do is be a self-hating person and this country will find you a platform. But it's still, it still, it hasn't turned the tide. It hasn't made good people to generally Close, quiet. though, don't you think? I think that, well, I, I mean, look, I'm not an expert on this kind of thing. But I can say this, that if things don't go the way that I want them to go, I'm just speaking for myself personally, then we would have to worry about, you know, real war shooting in the streets and so forth. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, I, I suppose as a writer, the danger is this whole business of books and, you know, some knucklehead standing up at a school board meeting saying, I don't, this book is teaching my... I mean, those kind of people, you can't debate with them. They just have to be beat down. The fact is, How? you know... How do you beat just, them down? You vote against them. You just... Mm-hmm. you just Listen, librarians are not going to stop giving these books out. They can they can pretend to. They can say, oh, yeah, okay, we'll follow the rule. And they'll slip that book. Because I've, I've met thousands of librarians, hundreds of librarians in my life. They ain't going to listen. They can say yes, and, you know, so you can yes them to death. Just keep yesing them to death and keep doing what you're doing. And at some point, someone like me or somebody else is going to walk along and say, what the hell is this? Hmm. So, I mean, you have to vote now. I mean, if you're not voting and you're talking, then you don't count at all. But, um, I mean, by giving attention to some of these people, we're wasting our time, you know? I mean, that, that's, 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 that's nothing I have control over. But I have control over who I listen, who I write, you know, who I, I read about. It's interesting, though. I'm thinking of The Good Lord Bird, which was about John Brown, in part. Um, this one, this book is set in the 20s and 30s. And there is this attempt to either sugarcoat or whitewash or erase some of the darker parts of American history. Um, Governor DeSantis talks about, you know, the sort of positive side of slavery, which is you could learn a skill like being a blacksmith. I mean, how do you, you know, as someone who wants us to... to see the goodness and kindness in other people. How do you wrestle well, with that? first of all, why would you listen to a guy who eats ice cream with his fingers anyway? <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter what he says. Look, you don't when think I was so? a kid, if- look, uh, look, well, first of all, I can only talk about it from the perspective of a black person. Okay, black people have been hearing this kind of talk about themselves as long as I've been living. You're all robbers, you're all thieves, kind of can't walk in your neighborhood, blah, blah. And black people just keep on stepping on. They, just, you know, there are lots of problems with the black community, especially certainly in the church and everywhere else. So we've learned. How, when I say we, I mean black Americans have learned how to just take a hit, get up off the canvas, <laughs> climb out the canvas, and go get lunch. And then the next day, you climb and you take a few more hits. And after a while, you just say, you know what? I, I'm going to pick my battles. So I mean, I don't even I don't even mention that guy's name. That little the little ice cream eater from Florida, Mm -hmm. he doesn't count to me. Mm -hmm. He's not going to be president. If he were president, the only thing he would do, he'd galvanize us more. We give him attention, it just, 
it makes him feel more important. These people, they're a dying breed. We're winning. No one's going to say that, that, you know, they're losing. They're just going to throw everything at you but the kitchen sink. I mean, listen, women in this country, they're watching what's going on. All the elections are telling us that we're winning. Now, if we want to, you know, pretend that what he says is so egregious, it doesn't. People have been thinking this for a long time. You know, you, the struggle is immediate in your community, where you live, how you live. Some of that other stuff, you just have to filter it out and say, you know, who's my city councilman? Who's my state rep? Get with that. Don't worry about the the bigger picture. Will show mm. itself. There's a character in here, a doctor, white doctor, who um, the the black people in Chicken Hill use him to scare their children into taking <laughs> medicine. Otherwise, Dr. So-and-so is going to come after you. But you have a scene where, and I wonder if you could read it. It's on page 370. Um, it's just one little paragraph, and it starts, As the last firecracker broke the sky. All right. I'd rather have you read it than me. As the last firecracker broke across the sky, Doc, fully drunk, howled out his joy. It's all a dream, he shouted, this great America, this great land of opportunity. Give us your poor, your tired, your weak, and we will give them jobs and homes and businesses. We will make them men and women, and we will, he burped loudly, and they will, he burped loudly, replace us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's very current <laughs> for someone to be saying in the. Well, I, I mean, I, I you know you editorialize a little bit. Of in your course, books. yeah, yeah, but but it's also an important statement, which is, time marches on and things change and. Well, if you can change, you survive. Yeah. I mean, that's really that's the story of every artistic life, of your artist that I've paid attention to. I mean, when Herman Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick. And he was writing about New Bedford, Massachusetts. You'd never read about New Bedford in that way. He walked through town and he saw. He wrote about what he saw. And so, um, in this case, in the case of Doc uh, Doc Roberts, he he wasn't a bad person. He was just a person who couldn't accept the future. And if you can't accept the future, you'll always be unhappy. It, accepting the future means, again, the joy is in the journey. And uh, that that's really what it's all about. I mean, there there are several so-called bad characters, him him being one. Also, the uh, there's a guy at Penhurst, son of man, who truly is well, evil. He is an evil guy. He's an evil guy. But you seem to also be asking us to see their humanity, well, which is hard. Well, you you can't. I mean, you can't if you're going to write a book that's any good. You can't really judge people too much and even if they're evil I mean we live in a world where villains succeed and heroes die and that happens in real life and in books too you have to try to draw your characters in a way that shows it shows that we have something in common with them as well I mean the best policemen have to think like crooks and the best crooks have to think like policemen so um, and, and you know in some ways Doc is a victim as well I, mean, I don't feel sorry for him, but he is a victim of you know he 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 shows it that when he was when they came to Pottstown and they started opening businesses and the factories moved the farmers out. I mean that wasn't a racial issue; that was just a fact of economic life, and some of that's not good. Yeah. He heads up the local chapter <laughs> of the KKK, marching in the parade, but everyone sort of recognizes his, you know, who it is because even though he's, I guess. Got his little mask well, on or whatever. Well, because he had because he had polio and he too marched. Yeah. He marched with a limp. Yeah. 
so everyone knew who he was. Yeah. Um, look, at least you know who you're dealing with when you deal with Doc Roberts. He was very honest about you know who he was. There's nothing wrong with someone being honest about who they were, who they are. I think it's the people who pretend to be something else that are the real dangers. Well, let me quote you, James McBride. You write, the white man despised him in Pennsylvania as much as he did in the low country. The difference was that the white man in the South spoke his hatred in clear, clean, concise terms, whereas the white man in the new country hid his hatred behind stories of wisdom and bravado with false smiles of sincerity and stories of Jesus Christ and other nonsense that he tossed around like confetti in the Potsdam Parade. Is that true, you think, to, the, to this day? Uh, I think to some degree, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, we're learning how to, you know, w- w- we're, because of our young people, we're learning how to work our way through some of these racial problems, and they're difficult problems, and the solutions aren't like right now, today, you know, instant. But yeah, I mean, that's how that's how it was, and to some degree, that's how it. Let's look. Donald Trump didn't come from Mississippi now, and neither did Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, came from Queens. Rudy Giuliani was like, you know, he was America's mayor. But if you ask a black person from New York or a person, a sophisticated New York, they'll say, we knew what he was before. So, I mean, some of this is just about, about the fact that we have got to accept the fact that our country's changing and embrace the change, hmm. you know? I'm curious how religious you are because from other novels, but this one as well, there's a lot of references to God. Some of them are kind of irreverent, you know, and some of them more more reverent <laughs> well you look you know if you had jesus in your life you'd be better no <laughs> you need jesus I, look I, I i'm i of course i'm religious because i grew up in the church right. but i'm not one of those bible thumping i have a lot of issues with religion. the older i get frankly the the less you know standard religious i become i i, I find myself becoming because some of this stuff i just can't take it you know, this whole thoughts and prayers and this right-wing Christianity, it's just an embarrassment. Uh, anybody who's too steeped in any religion, I ain't got no time for. I, I don't know how to say it any other nice way. I mean, every religion has good elements. Mm-hmm. Take those good elements and you're a friend of mine. But if not, I don't want to hear anything about what you have to say because it's just become too much. You hmm. know? It's just too much. Um, so that's my feeling about that. You wrote, you have to be a little... You have to have a little innocence to be a good writer. And I, I scribbled that down because I thought it was, I thought that was interesting. Well, I mean, I, I work, I work, you know, I wake, I work to preserve <laughs> that innocence, you know, I, I, because you have to believe in the good of people. Look, I've, I know, I've met many people like Doc Roberts mm-hmm. who are racist and they're old-fashioned. They, and some of them my my friends. I mean, I like them. I call them at 2 o'clock in the morning and come pick me up. I know not to talk about Donald Trump when they're around. Well, I just keep it light. But that doesn't mean I don't like them. I accept them, you know, how they are. It's okay. Um, I think what it is is cynicism for a, a writer. It, it It's toxic, oh. you know. You can't be created with cynicism. Uh, skeptic, skepticism is okay. Mm-hmm. But skin is, the cynicism is toxic. That's like, you know. How so? How so? Because it doesn't allow story. It doesn't allow people to, to get into a position where they can say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. My bad. I'm sorry. So even Doc Roberts, as bad as he was, he knew he'd done something bad and he really felt sorry about it, but it was too late. And that makes him 
a likable person, hmm. even though you know he did something bad. I mean, wouldn't society be better instead of locking all these men and women up? We gave them a chance to say, "I'm sorry, I made a mistake." Yes, some of them will commit crime, crimes again, sure, but other countries have found a way to do it. Our thing is lock them up, make them go away, and let's go see, you know, let's go see the Eagles this Sunday. <laughs> that, that kind of that kind of thing doesn't work for me. Do you read reviews of your books in, in real time? I mean, if you have a book that and you have a book that just came out, have you been reading reviews? I don't. I haven't read reviews in. The last review I read was a, a review that came out when Sp- I was working with Spike Lee, and he sat me down. And, and that's a read. long time ago. Yeah, I don't read reviews. If I, I don't care what people listen. Not you sneak, have to have blind read or anything. No, I'll, I'll get a line. Somebody, you know, my, you know, my, somebody will, you know, throw a line at me, or you know, someone like you will say, "This person said that's okay, that's yeah. cool," but I don't, I don't read them because I, I'm just, I just don't want to know what other people. Th- I mean, with all, I'm happy if the review is good. If it's bad, I don't want to know about it. You can't listen to what other people... Look, my mother never listened to nobody. <laughs> so that kind of worked for her, and it works for me. Just keep keep on stepping. Keep on stepping. Well, James McBride, as always, a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today on The Connection. Well, well, thank you for, thank you for having me with you. Absolutely. And again, his most recent um, novel... I'll just whisper this, it's gotten great reviews, <laughs> is titled The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. And as we have been talking about, uh, much of it, or really all of it, really taking place uh, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We'll go to whyy.org slash the connection, and you can find out more about the program. You can also download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Adam Staniszewski has been the engineer for today's edition of The Connection, and the show is produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler. And we closing out, uh, close things out with Chick Webb and Ella Fitzgerald, Rocket for Me. While the band is playing, it ain't no shame to keep your body swaying. Beat it out in the minor key. Oh, rock it for me. Can't you hear me singing la 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 while the band is swinging? Politely, rightly, and slightly, oh, 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 rock it for me. Now I'm all through with this stuff they call symphony. Come on, boys, and sort of rock it for me. 